Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Anna Bugatskaya, film programmer, broadcaster, writer, creative producer, co-founder of the horror film collective The Final Girls, and festival director of the Underwire Festival. And I feel like I'm still not covering every job she does. Hello, Anna. Hi, Sam. I've also forgotten the other jobs that I have, so I I apologize in advance to myself and my other projects. You're a true multi-hyphenate. What a what a what an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for asking me. I've been waiting for this for literally years, Sam. The <laughs> time has finally come. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of your work. I'm a big fan of your film programming work. I've been lucky to go to screenings you have put on. You are beyond qualified to be a guest on this podcast. You're also a podcaster, and I've heard your voice on so many wonderful shows. Recently, I've heard your voice on the radio as well, on, on real-life actual radio, on the uh, the Radio 5 Live Commode and Mayo film review show. That's wild. Wow. <laughs> it is wild. It's like, it's, you know... It's like podcasting, but kind of the same, but also not. Going out at a certain time, what I love about podcasts is like Mm. years later, you know, you get messages or you can see the stats. People are like, they're listening to my pod I made five years ago. What's going on with that? But with the radio, I guess that, you know, at 2 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, thousands and thousands of people are going to be tuning in. Like that's, I don't know, it's sort of, it's it's weird. Like as a podcaster, it blows my mind. It does blow my mind. And I think actually it's never nerve wracking for me because I, I just think of it as eventually it will become a podcast. I mean, there are very different rules. There are very different regulations. Um, but what I do, I mean, I fell in love with podcasting over a decade ago. And it's uh, one of the things I love about the medium so much is the freedom of it, is the the weird niches that can exist. The fact that so many people who are not, you know, broadcasters are doing shows that I've fallen in love with and kind of have you know spent years with there's podcasters that I've listened to for over 10 years that have grown up moved cities moved jobs got married had children had like big diseases or life events happen to them and I've kind of listened to them all the way through and it blows my mind that's what you know people have never met people have never interacted with not even online and it to have such an intimate ongoing relationship with with the host and I think a lot of people feel the same way about radio you know I was never a person who would tune in to a specific time for for a specific show on radio I did on tv but I find that that kind of relationship is pretty much the same one. People love listening. It's a to specific people talk. It's a form of companionship. And I think that's quite heartening. I think that really takes away the the nerves of the this very amorphous abstract idea of, you know, there's a million people listening to you right now at 3 p.m. on BBC Five Live or whatever. Um, it's just, oh hey, it's my invisible friends, which I probably shouldn't say because parasocial relationships are a thing. But you know, let's not get too dark too soon. It's only been two minutes. 
I think I was first exposed to your work or, or, or sort of saw you in a professional setting through your work with The Final Girls. And I just wanted to know if you could tell the listeners a little bit about how what that is and how it started. Sure. So uh, The Final Girls started now a number of years ago uh, in 2016 with one of my good friends, Olivia Howe and I, we, we kind of bonded. We used to work in the same office at the BFI and we kind of bonded secretly over this dirty little secret that we both had. And it's that we, we, we liked horror films and we kind of whispered the horror films that we were watching and over literally a, a text exchange, a WhatsApp exchange one Saturday morning, we sort of came up with the name of the final girls with the, with the essence of the concept and with the first screening, where first screening was Trouble Every Day by Claire Denis, which at that point when we screened it in 2016, May 2016, hadn't been shown in a cinema in London for about 10 years. So it was kind of not spoken about it wasn't really screened it was still the kind of the cursed film of the great tour that is Claire Denis because it's a cannibal love story where things get a little bit gory and a little bit sexy and they get real uncomfortable for everyone in both ways and <laughs> it was there was such a great response and I remember actually that was the um, that was the day as we were leaving the screening that I got my job programming for the BFI. So it was also the day where I kind of like started doing big girl programming as well at the same time as the final girls were being born. And since then we've done kind of, it's transformed as a collective. We started doing events and screenings, doing a lot of partnerships with festivals, with, um, with distributors, with cinemas up and down the country. Obviously that got halted quite significantly because of the, the pandemic. So we launched the Final Girls podcast at the end of 2019, and that's just been going on weekly and looking at seasons that are thematic, which is, you know, a whole nother way of programming, uh, looking at thematic seasons that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism, which actually all that means is that essentially it's, it's female and non-binary voices that are talking about horror films. There's not necessarily a particular kind of feminist agenda to it at all. It's just creating a space for people who perhaps were felt that they weren't welcomed by the film bro community and especially the horror bro community. There's been a significant new wave of female horror filmmakers. It just means that the final girls have been kind of at the heart of talking and and making events and and kind of stirring up conversation about what it what horror means from a female perspective is there is there a different sensibility and genuinely just catering to horror fans who identify as women and who just want a, a non-toxic kind of inclusive space where you kind of enjoy horror of all shades it's not very academic but uh it's it's kind of fun fun smart is what i'm aiming for great to see how it started as a you know one one element of, of cinema literally in cinemas and you've grown to be more of a cultural conversational piece but it is so much fun putting our screening right that's why we do this it is it's it's kind of like a, a real masochistic pleasure because there's so much work that goes into it that's invisible work and there's so much thinking that goes into something that is an experience and yet the real the real kind of treasure the real pleasure of this like I, i'll still have people who who will mention specific screenings that we've programmed either with the final girls or that i've done at the bfi and that's such a such a validating experience to have someone be like oh yeah i remember that screening of carrie at the ica 
that was amazing or that was whatever or that was the first time that I saw that movie and I've done this this and that since then and and those experiences matter I still think about screenings I've been to like 15 years ago you're very much in that sort of horror genre and films that you enjoy but do you also uh, get the same thrill I do <laughs> when planning your next movie when you look at the runtime is 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 runtime something that's important to you I very rarely make decisions based on runtimes however I will say I will give every film the opportunity to earn its two and a half hours or whatever but very rarely do they do earn those two and a half hours. So actually, I do get a little bit, a little flutter of excitement when I see that something that's 90 minutes or less. I'm like, oh, dear, you can edit. <laughs> What's going on here? Like when Host came out and it was just over, uh, over 60 minutes long, I was like, oh, you guys what is going on here? What is, what is this going to be like? <laughs> you have my attention. I am here for you. And I mean, you know, it's not a decisive factor in any way, but it's sort of, um, I think, you know, uh, genuinely, and because I've watched a lot of shorts and I'm, I'm just kind of now finishing off, uh, well, or finish the programming for Underwire 2022. So I've watched hundreds of them quite recently. And it's, I always find it always have, it's incredibly difficult to make a short film. It's incredibly difficult to be economical in your storytelling and to cut what needs to be cut. So I'm not saying that every film that's over 90 minutes, over two hours, doesn't need every single minute and second of its runtime. But I think being economical with your storytelling is a real skill. So it sounds like you're quite open-minded with your runtime uh, preferences, but you know, you're you're curious about those those magical the unicorn ninety minute or less movie. Yeah, and and it's I'm kind of open minded about cinema in general. I know a lot. I do a lot of horror stuff because of the final girls. I was very keen when when you asked me to come on to not do a horror film because I actually like, I love all cinema, whether it's very long, it's better if it's shorter, or you know whether it's genre or non genre. And, you know, there is also a historical thing. I know that a lot of people are moaning on Twitter about kind of how all films seem to be over two and a half hours long. They're not wrong. It does seem to be a sort of a trend, which I find quite curious. But it is also, if you look back at kind of film history, it's 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 that either everything or nothing that you were talking about, you know, either something was five hours or six hours long uh, and required an intermission, or it was just the most complete tight storytelling that you can imagine and which is why they're still so wonderful to watch and rewatch because it's just masterful lessons in storytelling so knowing that you like uh you enjoy a rich diet of cinema how did you approach your homework for the show today which is to pick another film to join our prestigious under 90 minute film festival lineup yeah, i'm not gonna lie i took it very seriously sam to the point where i had multiple i had a whole nother window with multiple tabs open I went to several lists, then I went to double check the runtime of specific films that I really love that I wanted to talk about. I had this all, all written out on paper. I made a physical list <laughs> and then I went through your archive and I was like, okay, is this one has been covered? Is this one been covered? Mm, oh no. Okay. But I really wanted to, okay, I'm going to try to sneak this one in, see if, see if he wants to do it again, because he did the, he did it only, you know, like four years ago, maybe, maybe we can do a fresh take. <laughs> And, and then I had a list of about 20 films and then I whittled it down to about five, which is the ones that I sent to. And then I had to order them by order of my preference. 
the five that I sent to you. So uh, yeah, I took it real seriously. I love it when people take, uh, <laughs> take it seriously. I love hearing the stories. I'm, I'm glad I appreciate the work you've put into it. That's why you do the things you do. That's why you're a festival director and a film curator and, and all these good things. If you take it seriously, can you please put us out of our misery and, and tell us what film you, you picked for us today, Anna? I am joining the ranks of Stanley Kubrick, of Orson Welles, of Slavok Zizek. These are all people who said on the record categorically that they consider to be one of the best films ever made and one of their personal favorite films, which is Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. Wandering the city streets, the little tramp happens upon a blind flower girl who mistakes him for a wealthy gentleman and manages to save and befriend a drunken millionaire who is trying to drown himself in the river. A world of disenchanted bourgeoisie where social structure and class are misconceived and questioned at every turn. City Lights has gone down in history as not only one of Chaplin's best films, but one of the best ever committed to celluloid. I was thrilled when you selected City Lights. You have joined the hallowed halls not only of Stanley Kubrick and Robert Bresson, but also of Pamela Hutchinson, a previous guest on the podcast who chose... Chaplin's previous movie to this film, The Circus, I think came out in 1928. This is 1931. So three years sort of gap there. I think famously City Lights did shoot for a ridiculously long time. Oh, yes, it did. Because Chaplin was a specific boy. (laughs) Multiple takes to David Fincher of his day, if you will. Um... Yes, I love that comparison. (laughs) That's so good. I love that we're also at this phase where like, you know, we can just pick up a hundred year old movie on dvd that's cool and it looks really good it does (laughs) look beautiful i rewatched it today for this for this episode and i mean you know we'll get into it but it's just it's so glorious it's just pure it's just pure artistry and pure cinema it's one of the reasons why i love kind of um silent film and and early hollywood cinema as well it's because a everything is new i mean even though it's over 100 years old now you can see that things were being created, you know, how much imagination and creativity did you need to have to literally be creating a whole new language, a visual language? It's amazing. You know, this is 1931. There's still lots of, you know, cinematic firsts in this film and and in so many of Chaplin's movies. I feel like he's someone who's always keen to entertain. Like the audience, I think, is always first with him. He comes from vaudeville, from the stage. He loves entertaining people. He's so taken by the technology of filmmaking and the experience of of what you can do on screen that you cannot do on stage. He's always sort of trying different techniques, you know, whether it's sped up footage or wipes or, you know, clever editing. And, uh, and, and, and I love that. And I think in this film, as well as, you know, all of the great visual stuff, He's starting to experiment with sound a little bit. This is a silent movie. Uh, there is no in-sync uh, dialogue or, or, or sound effects. Um, apart from, we do get some human voices in this film, which are kind of like the peanuts kind of thing where adults are talking and they're just like obtuse noises rather than actual voices. Well, well, actually, this film kind of sits in between 
the technologies because uh, the talkies, the talking pictures were already kind of out and uh, already happening. But Chaplin re- was refusing to do a, a talking picture. And so, he, but he kind of did something in between with City Lights where obviously no one else could get away with doing what he did because he was Chaplin. He was a huge star. He he was his own producer. He was his own distributor. He was the star as well as in like on the screen. He was the director. You know, he was a multi-hyphen, a multi-hyphenate. So he owned the entire chain of supply right except the cinemas so he he put his foot down and he did want to make it a silent movie but actually the the sound effects and kind of the sound is part of the film but there is no dialogue that's all intertidal so it is kind of an in-between because it does use some of the the sound technology but it's it's still a silent film it doesn't use dialogue the little tramp doesn't speak the flower girl doesn't speak the drunken millionaire don't speak we only see the dialogue through um the intertitles as you would in fully silent films and i love that we're still getting intertitles here and, and chaplin's so good at those also the um the pre-title before the movie uh, it describes the film as a, a pantomime a love story in pantomime yeah like it's such a nice way to tell the audience what they're about to watch and, and a great way to describe the film that should be on the back of the dvd it, i mean literally this film is a rom-com think about it this film is a rom-com every single trope is there there's a meet cute there's a series of obstacles there is a mistaken identity and then there is a dramatic reunion which ends really well for our protagonists. I didn't really think about it until you said that, but of course, this is we're seeing a tender side to Chaplin in this film. And maybe that's why so many people, it resonates with so many people. You know, like Chaplin has made so many films by this point, but this one is often cited as a, as a fave, and maybe it's tugging at Kubrick's heartstrings. You know, maybe it made Bresson cry. Can you imagine the scene? Oh, Kubrick, Orson Welles, Bresson, all great filmmakers and from different eras kind of crying at City Lights. I can imagine this. I rewatched it today for the upteenth time. I've seen this film, I don't know, over 10 times in my lifetime. And I cried again. It's it's just impossible to not shed a tear at the final scene. It's just, I mean, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I think it's one of the best pieces, like one of the best five minutes of cinema ever filmed any era any time any country ever full stop it's just it's just art it's a film which is very celebrated and it's been added to so many lists over the years it's officially in the library of congress in the states it's being preserved by the national film registry but i think even around the time or maybe slightly more contemporary to the film's release you know in the 40s people were saying this is an incredible piece of cinema you know and it's it's sort of been championed throughout a lot of its lifespan, which I really like. We often hear on this podcast, especially when older films are chosen, I know it came into its own in the 50 years later when audiences discovered it. But I think with City Lights, this is Chaplin at the height of his game. Yes. You know, one of the most famous humans in the world at this point. Yeah. And and it's Chaplin delivering, you know, yet another great film. And he made, like, it made bang. It did really well at the box office. It I did read that it had, like, one slightly sketchy test screening before it premiered but then the premiere went really well and then it 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 he even raised the ticket price for the original run because he was like people will come now this is now this is weird technology so now this is a gimmick you know you know when people moan about kind of 3d or 4dx or you know whatever it's like oh it's just a gimmick it's like yes and and these gimmicks have always happened these gimmicks have always been a reason to get people into the cinema and you know in a in a world where at that time 
the new technology was sound, he was like, well, no, I'm going to make a silent movie and you're going to pay more <laughs> because, because now it's vintage. <laughs> <laughs> Such an astute businessman, uh, you oh, know, no. <laughs> Charles Chaplin, the film producer, a very yeah. savvy uh, person indeed. He did like a global tour with the film, like a global junket, which I guess is very what film stars do now but you know i guess when you're a one-man band like he was it's even more exhausting but yeah it is it is very nice sometimes there's outliers like that that are well received by critics well received by audiences well received by peers as well you know which is why i mention all these great names of filmmaking who love the film that's quite extraordinary for one single title to unite people like across generations, across countries, across tastes or, you know, sensibilities. And they all agree that this is, you know, one of the most beautiful pieces of cinema ever made. Just in terms of your relationship with, with, with Chaplin and, and this film, do you remember when you first saw this film? Was this your first uh, Chaplin movie or had you did you know some of his work by the time you got to watch this one? This was, I think, my first conscious Chaplin movie because I think with with superstars of his expansive kind of caliber, you know, it's it's like trying to pinpoint the first time you listen to a Beatles song. You know, it's difficult because sometimes they're so ubiquitous that you don't even know what you're listening or watching be when you're actually kind of, you know, getting it. But the first time I remember watching a Chaplin film, it was City Lights. And I was studying cinema in, in Paris and the French just love Chaplin, always have loved Chaplin. And I got to, to him through, I think, a piece of criticism or, or a class. And I remember watching this film and just being, I forgot it was a silent movie. I forgot it was a Chaplin movie. I was laughing. I was completely invested in it. I I cried at the end. Every single time I've seen this film since, I've always cried at the end. And and I'm not like genuinely, uh, I, I think I've grown to be a crier, but I was never a crier at the movies. And it felt very, like a very intense emotional experience watching this film. I remember reading, kind of getting really, really into Chaplin, like obsessed with his work. I watched all his films, the the talking ones, the all his silent stuff. And then I was reading a lot about him. And I think one of my, and it still is one of my favorite pieces of film criticism ever written, is an entire sort of short essay book that Francois Truffaut wrote about Chaplin's kick. It's the way that he kicks his leg back behind him. And I remember very distinctly kind of that very emotional relationship to Chaplin's work, kind of a very pure, I don't know what this is, who this is, looks familiar. I think I've seen images of him and then completely falling in love with that emotionally and then discovering also this hyper intellectualized approach to his work and the history of it and all the people who have thought and written about 
Chaplin since then. And you know, there's a million documentaries, there's a million um, essays and books written about him, memoirs, his own memoir. There's so much information out there uh, that it would be impossible to consume all of it. But I think I, I would never turn off a Chaplin film. If I stumble across it, I will always watch it. And I think the the more I've rewatched this, his stuff and rewatching City Lights this time around, it's just so good. It just does not age badly at all. There is so much craft and precision to it. And yet the emotions still hit. It's, I mean, I'm kind of amazed, you know, because I'm like over the years, like I was what, like 19 or uh, 19 or something or 20 when I first watched City Lights for the first time and cried my little heart out. And I'm like, I'm fully dead inside by now. And I still cried my eyes out watching it. So like the power of Chaplin to like resuscitate my black dead heart at this point, it's kind of extraordinary. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I think, I think he is this, he's this image we grew up with you know, whether it's through parody or like references in cartoons, I'm always blown away whenever I see one of his films though, because it's like, I'm always like ready for the, maybe it's, you know, the British sensibility or something, but I'm always ready to be disappointed. So like someone's going to come to me and be like, oh, this film is so good. You got to watch it. And I'm like, will it be, are you sure? And sometimes films don't live up to that. And it's, I'm just sort of like, yeah, of course. But then when those rare films do, um, it's it's such a joy. Like it's as good as people say. It's as good as Robert Bresson says. And and I feel like Chaplin does live up to the hype. You know, it's very easy to land loads of praise on, and 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 yeah, I don't know. Like marketeers can be very good at really putting that in front of the audience. And it sometimes it impossibly raises expectations. But Chaplin can take it, and it's so nice. Yes. It's like a magic trick. You know, he's mm-hmm. as good as people say. He holds up <laughs> after a hundred years, and and I Put love that, that on the DVD cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's always such a thrill um to do that and i'm always a bit relieved like oh he's still good you know um you know one of my favorite kind of a uh, favorite this is let me reveal a sad truth about myself sam um i love rewatching films and also i love to kind of i think it's really hard for people to change really hard for people to change their opinions right but i do there are kind of the films as they are and in their time and then there's our memory of a film, of who we were when we watch it, how do we watch it? Do we watch it in the cinema? Do we watch it by ourselves? Whatnot. And we kind of hold on to the memory of it. There's a great um, Molly Haskell quote, you know, that there's oh, a film is always two films. It's the film that it is, and it's the film that you remember it to be. And very few times do they actually align. And I love that because then, you know, you can go and back and rewatch things, which I love doing, and see how you feel or what you think differently and whether you miss some things. And you remember who you were when you watched those films for the first time as well. And, so, and you know, necessarily sometimes those things change. Some things age really badly. Some things suddenly take a completely new turn and you're kind of watching a completely different movie. You know, there's there's this thing that I love that I think it's Jesse Armstrong and the Succession cast and writers started doing, which I read in an article and I'm 100% going to copy because I think it's excellent. Uh, they started doing this set of screenings to each, for each other called Questionable Bangers, where they, <laughs> <laughs> where they would pick a film that they remember liking, that they remember being a banger, and then they would kind of, you know, but it's always because it's been a, bit, a long time, they'd be like, well, there's a question mark. Is it questionable or is it actually a banger? Um, and then it would find out by rewatching it. So that's what I've now started doing. I kind of like rewatching films that I remember 
loving or thinking, oh my God, that film is excellent. That film's amazing. I loved it. And then being, you know, challenging myself to see, is it, is it a, is it still a banger or is it questionable? <laughs> and oh, wow. Chaplin is always a banger. I'm Helen O'Hara, film journalist, author, and host of Women vs. Hollywood, a new podcast from the Stripped Media family. We're exploring the fall and rise of women in Hollywood from the silent era to the present day and into the future. Each episode, I'm joined by three or more special guests to discuss the challenges that women face in the film industry and look at what we can do to change the picture. We've got actors, directors, producers, writers, academics, film experts, you name it, they're all here to explain what's going on in Hollywood. Search for Women vs. Hollywood now, wherever you're listening to this, and come join us. I guess I like this about a lot of Chaplin's. I, I feel like he is like, he's, he's the story and the audience always comes first. But then he likes to sort of, you know, take the audience on a bit of a journey and, and he sort of likes to flex. And, and I feel like he does this in this film so well. Like, yeah, we get the visual gags there. We get that amazing sequence with um, the trap door in the, in the sidewalk. It's wonderful. I mean, one of my favorite things about the little tramp in general, and it's so excellent in City Lights in particular, is this outrage that he presents you know whenever you know when he when this guy kind of appears out of nowhere the his first reaction is like how dare you sir you know his entire body is like how how dare you i am a gentleman and then like quickly adjust himself once he realizes what's happening or that he's in, in physical peril um and he does that in so many different situations you know like he sort of plays plays up to this you know He's he's destitute. He's he's homeless, but he's got such pride and integrity to him, uh, and that I think really that's a character trait that informs his physical comedy, which is one of the things I think makes it so funny. It's because it comes from a character. It's not just slapstick humor for the sake of slapstick. Um, it's it's kind of familiar. It makes sense for a little tramp, and I think that's kind of. That's why his moments of tenderness never feel cheesy. They're always very pure-hearted, very earnest. And it's very hard, actually, to do earnestness in a comedy, especially a comedy that's so physical, uh, like Chaplin's was. I feel like a trope maybe of, or and maybe it's just something that's in early cinema, there's always there's often a romance, you know, that, that's often what the films are, are sort of based around. And the Tramp has had various love interests over the years, but the relationship, I think, in City Lights is like peak Tramp romance. Why, why do you feel like the relationship in, in, in this film really, you know, hits home more than the, the in some of his other work? You're going to make me get cheesy. I'm going to have to get cheesy for this. Oh, damn. So... I think this is probably the peak Chaplin romance on screen because it is, it's feeding into this very simple, very universal fantasy. Love is blind and what counts is on the inside, right? It's not the money. It's not the physical beauty. It's about kindness and it's about personality. And the fact that the tramp kind of having nothing wants to do good by the flower girl to help her and you know obviously this is like a fantastical element that he can you know get money to get her an operation that will restore her eyesight she's she's a blind woman it's a fantasy but it's earnest and honest and then the fact that she when she's doing well and he's at his lowest not only is able to recognize him but also to take him as he is and see him as he is 
I mean, isn't that what everybody or almost everybody would want, you know, for lack of a better expression, to feel seen and accepted by someone else for who they are, as opposed to what they present themselves to be? I mean, it's a, in, in one, that's why I mentioned that those five, last five minutes or, you know, three minutes of the film are some of the most beautiful, most touching, most perfect moments of cinema history ever. It's because it kind of with one look, with one scene kind of manages to both close the story of the film, give us a satisfying revolution, but also tap into something so universal and so unspoken. So it's uncomfortable to speak earnestly. It's uncomfortable. It's vulnerable. It's cheesy. I mean, you know, I want to slap myself in the face for getting this cheesy on this podcast, but it's true. You know, that's why it strikes a chord so much every time you watch it. It's And, you know, Chaplin has even said that that, that City Lights was his favorite film that he made. And he agonized over the over the story with the shop girl, agonized over the casting of the shop girl and kind of recast and, and cast back again and, and mess people around endlessly to get it right. And apparently that last scene was extremely detailed in his treatment and his script of it. But also that was the moment where he said it was so real. He wasn't even acting. And it's it's I think that's, you know, in the cheesiest possible way, that's why it works so well, because it's quite raw while we, at the same time essentially giving us the blueprint for the rom-coms that we love. You know, the big, massive moment where, you know, Bridget Jones runs down in her underwear to Mark Darcy and just says, yeah, I like I like you just as you are. That's essentially what the flower girl is saying to Chaplin just silently. Chaplin's such a, a pioneer. He sort of just invented the rom-com, you know, like, like. <laughs> making a great movie and all of this stuff. And like, oh, yeah, I guess this is a really good formula, actually, that people will enjoy. <laughs> and for the next hundred years, people will be, you know, citing the structure and and uh, and returning to it and have it, making their own take on it. But I feel like he didn't set out with this to be like, I'm going to lay the groundwork for the rom-com. I'm just going to tell my story and accidentally did yeah this. it's like when when orson wells accidentally invented the mockumentary just you know to mess with people <laughs> it's like oh Saul's just gonna invent a new genre because i'm bored anna do you have a, a favorite scene in, in in city lights i'll give i mean i think yes number one forever and ever and ever will be the end scene when the flower girl sees the little tramp recognizes him because she sees him before she recognizes him oh i can't i can't even talk about it i'm gonna start crying again it's gonna be embarrassing but I think my second favorite would have to be actually the start. It's when he, you know, there's this big unveiling of a big statue. It's all very grand. It's very posh. All the the, the rich people sound like the little kazoos, like the noise that comes out of the kazoos. It's so, it's pure satire. And then, you know, the little tramp is just asleep on the statue that gets unveiled. And then it just, it's just one shot of him trying to get down and he can't get down. And obviously, you know, everything about his costuming is exaggerated and way too big for Chaplin's frame and it's just it's just pure comedy it's just pure comedy and everybody's kind of yelling at him and and shouting at him and it's just the kazoo noises which are so annoyed and he's kind of
kind of just woken up and sort of he's like oh my god chill i just woke up i'm i'm trying i'm trying i'm trying here can you see me try and i can almost just hear him in my head it's like screaming at these rich people that are yelling at him to get down for violating the statue that they're unveiling and it's just it's chef's kiss it's beautiful it's never it's never not funny and it's kind of i think um a really great encapsulation of why Chaplin's physical comedy still works so well because it does you know there are things happening there details that you instantly get uh, and the satire is instantly recognizable and then there's this just the prowess that he has you know the control over physical comedy that he has is just also something else it's hilarious so i'd say that's you know the the bookends of city lights are just so perfect you know because you get this just gorgeously controlled exemplary piece of physical comedy and a political satire basically and this moment of pure raw tenderness at the end it's these two extremes that perfectly make up why chaplin and why city lights works so well even you know almost a hundred years on city lights is going to be the third chaplin film in our festival i think by this point we're approaching 90 movies three of them are charlie chaplin frankly it's not enough but we got three of them we should make the most of it you are not a guest curator who hasn't done this before you know you, you've got chops you've got skin in this game you you have professionally as a job put on film screenings so i'd love to know what you could maybe bring to our festival so first of all where if you could choose any cinema or setting to screen city lights where would you like to to show the movie i would like to show it i'm gonna go back to the source i'd like to show it at the los angeles theater which is where it premiered in 1931, and which has not been operating as a public venue since the 90s, but it does get hired as a as an event space, and it's you know a historic landmark in LA. I've never been to LA, but that's where I would do it. You know, I'm I'm painting a picture here. So you go back to the source, you screen it in the original place where it first debuted in 1931. I mean, you know, if physics and money were not an object, actually what I would do is I would take off the roof of the cinema so you could actually see the sky and you could, you know, screen it at dusk so the stars come out and then you have the sky above you while you watch City Lights in the space where it originally premiered. But obviously, you know, that would be impossible. But since this is a, a mythical, no restrictions film festival that's what i'm gonna do we're celebrating a great pioneer of cinema nothing was impossible for chaplin we should follow <laughs> in his ambitious footsteps yeah um, we can make this happen we can remove the rule we will raise the roof uh we will <laughs> we will spell out city lights with actual city lights um no one has ever opted to bring a film back to you know its original premiere venue that's uh that's 10 points for originality love that uh <laughs> i love that for me i love winning acknowledging the, the the history there yeah i think that's great i was reading about the premiere that uh einstein wanted to go to was, was at the premiere he was invited to the premiere of the movie i didn't know this no albert einstein also is a fan of city lights kubrick nolan bresson einstein me we're all right we're all correct okay so we got a venue 
an amazing venue. We're going back to Tinseltown to, to, to screen this film. What's your cinema going to sell snack-wise? Are we going to do drinks? What, what's the food and beverage sort of situation? So we are only doing cocktails with, uh, this is something that I tried recently, and now I'm obviously obsessed with um, Destroyed Champagne. So we're doing destroyed champagne cocktails in coupes. The glasses have to be very specific. They're very old-timey, but classy. They're being served all throughout the screening. And there will be linen, white linen napkins on, in front of every single seat because everyone is guaranteed to cry their little heart out at the end scene. So, you know, we're going to prepare people for that and give them, you know, the tools to compose themselves afterwards and in my dream scenario as well uh there is no there is no popcorn there is no food nothing like that it's red velvet seating you can see the sky and then as the i mean you know i don't know the layout of the cinema but i'm imagining now i'm picturing this now uh as the the film ends there is an orchestra that rises from the stage of the cinema to start play and that orchestra is being led also by Johnny Greenroot from uh, Radiohead so <laughs> that starts playing an originally composed new soundtrack for City Lights wow Boom. okay I mean that's the joy of, of silent cinema is we can play with the score we can do live scores alongside this I mean we're offering the audience a lot of bang for their buck as well if you could host a after film talk for this movie, who would your dream guest be? The joy of this festival also is that we can bring people back from the dead. Some people don't agree with that. Some people do. I'm excited about that possibility. Okay, so on the one hand, I don't want to do a post-screening Q&A because I think everybody will be crying and I will be crying and it will get messy. But okay, let's make it a full-blown earnest experience. We're bringing back Chaplin from the dead. We're also bringing back Virginia Sherrill from the dead who plays the flower girl we're gonna give chaplin a and virginia a standing ovation and then we're gonna host i'm gonna host a q a with them where we all cry i think the end game is that we're all crying on stage i love that a very cathartic moment uh johnny green was crying <laughs> einstein's crying apparently at the premiere chaplin i think in his autobiography says he looked over at einstein at the end of city lights and he saw tears this film made einstein cry exactly my point Exactly my point. I think I think kind of the 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 raw emotion of coming back from the dead and also seeing this film in its original venue, but with the sky illuminated by this by the city lights of Los Angeles. I think that's gonna make you know Chaplin cry. Uh, okay, so this is great. We've we got Chaplin on the lineup. Johnny Greenwood. I'm going to put Albert Einstein in as the producer of this festival. He's just coming along. I've, I've decided we'll have the cocktails. We're going to have the linen, napkins, beautiful screening. I've got another detail that I'd like to add on every. So when people get the, the linen embroidered napkins for their tears afterwards, they also get a single flower oh. that is going to be put <laughs> on every single napkin. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, I love that. And it's going to be uh, violet, violet colored. So purple, because the song that plays throughout the movie, the theme of the flower girl is a version actually of a Spanish song from 1914 called La Violetera, which actually Chaplin got sued for using and lost <laughs> and lost a lawsuit. Oh, wow. Because it's literally that that Spanish that Spanish song. 
So it actually, although this film is in black and white, obviously, for the event, the flower will be uh, purple because that's what the song is about. It's about a, a woman who sells um, violetas, which are, you know, lilacs, I think. Well, I think that's going to be a roaring success, much like watching City Lights, which everybody can do because it is widely available. And, and I heartily, heartily recommend uh, you do that. And if you enjoy City Lights, go back through our archive. Go and, and check out Pam talking about the circus and Suzanne talking about the kids. That would be a lovely under 90 minute triple bill. Okay, well, that brings us to the end. Thank you so much, Anna, for talking to us today. It's been such a thrill to, A, do my homework. People say homework is boring. Homework on this podcast is always a joy, especially when one of our guests says, you need to rewatch City Lights before we can talk. Beautiful stuff. Uh, so thank you so much for City Lights, but thank you so much for being such a great guest. Oh, it's been an absolute blast. I mean, you know, I've gone through an existential crisis. I almost cried. I got real earnest and I designed this fabulous, absolutely out of this mind expensive event that I now want to attend. Anna, where, where should people go to find out more about what you're up to, um, more of your work? So you can find everything I do on Twitter. You can find me there at Anna B. Demented. Uh, and I try to remember to post things that I do, or essays that I write or interviews that I'm hosting with filmmakers. I've got a... I'm not sure where this is coming out, but it will live on YouTube. I hosted a, a conversation with Rebecca Hall that was really fascinating for the Future Film Festival. That's on their YouTube. And you can find me hosting the Final Girls podcast, comes out weekly. And you can also find me with my friend and co-host Clarice Lockery talking about American Horror Story. We're recapping the entire show episode by episode and we're currently in season five. What else? I also occasionally uh, pop up on Evolution of Horror. Uh, I've got a number of single film podcasts that I've done. Namely, I revisited all the Scream films over at Hello Sydney, the official Scream podcast. Uh, I went really deep into Prano Bailey Bond's Censor with Censor This, uh, into Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman with Promising Young Podcast. So, you know, Twitter Twitter's the best place, I'd say, because it's it's a lot it's a lot i'm i'm very happy talking about movies quite often well thank you so much thank you very much for being on the show that was so much fun thank you for listening if you enjoyed the show please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice you can rate and review us on apple podcasts and spotify or if you've got a mo share an episode with your friends every recommendation helps you can contact us on our website 90minfilmfest.com and on twitter and instagram at 90minfilmfest the podcast is produced by me sam clements and louise owen it's edited by louise owen our music is by martin ostwick and our artwork is by sam gilby we'll be back in a couple of weeks We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.